This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Asia Torah's Practical Spirituality Program with Rabbi Yom Tov Glazer here overlooking the Temple Mount. Um, just to let you know my schedule a little bit, try not to bang into things when you come in next time. Please. <laughs> If you're going to party, don't trash the place. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Ha'adam Shakol Nebenor. Just let you know my schedule a little bit. I'll be in Seattle, Washington, so anyone in the Pacific Northwest should do their best to come for Shabbos in Seattle and join, join me. I'll be teaching and doing a concert after Shabbos in Seattle, Washington this week. Um, I don't know. And then I'll be... Then I'll be in Los Angeles for several days visiting my parents and surfing, of course. And then, um, and then I'll be on the East Coast running a seminar, possibly a seminar in Muncie, so people in the tri-state area. Uh, it's worth coming up to Muncie. It seems that's becoming more of my headquarters lately for running seminars in New York. Okay, gang. Um, and you can just look that up, thepossibleyou.org. Age groups, it's marrieds, but there are always, there's always a couple single girls coming to cry. I mean, try. Um, okay, here we go. So what we're talking about today is is uh, discussing sexuality with uh, children, but I'm sure it's going to hit a lot of different topics as we go. Um, this is one of the things that you just don't want to leave for uh, for um, self exploration. If in any possible way to have your kids uh, pre-educated before they hit the big leagues, um, it's a good idea. Now, the history of, of sexual education in the Jewish community is that you tell them like a day or two before they get married about it. Now, you know, that may sound cruel and unusual, but it is a little shocking to tell this to you know a 12-year-old girl who's getting married next week. It's enough of a shock. I mean, what are you going to do? Start telling her when she's 11? You know, but, but girls got married between 12 and 14 throughout all of history. And so it was left till before the wedding. We don't have much of a tradition of sexual education other than right before the little girl's wedding at between 12 and 14. The boys also didn't get much of a sexual education either because they were getting married between 14 and 16. And so it just wasn't the kind of thing you discussed much of because, you know, they probably still thought girls were weird or something by the time they're finally having to marry one. And, and so we don't have a long tradition of sexual education. We do have sexual education, however, in, um, in our sages. Our sages in the Talmud speak about it. And it's interesting that... Uh, that that the, there's one particular case where one of our sages is explaining to his daughters how to how to please their man quite graphically, and he it was kind of shocking that the father was the one training his daughters in this. And there's a lot of discussion in um, a lot of discussion in the in amongst our sages on the subject, but probably most of that was being spoken to to marrieds. Most of that, besides, obviously, the, the right before marriage instructions. So right before marriage instructions were going to the, going to the kids, and then they, would, then they would get married. And then as any other, like, more 
intense details of uh, how to do things right are um, were probably explained after the fact, like how to do it in the actual details of it. Yes. Uh, why was it so? Uh, By the way, oh, I just want to mention that any questions or any uh, comments. We're going to be going with the highest level. Because we're discussing this, is not something I'd usually discuss. We're going to be going with extreme, extreme respect. Extreme respect. Like, like the, you want to ask questions or comment with, with no joking around at all. This is not the kind of subject where we're going to be laughing and giggling over or saying anything that might draw attention to you or to anyone. Okay, go ahead. Why was it customary to marry so young? Oh, okay. um, a couple reasons it was customary to marry so young. It, uh, it first of all, the having having um, uh, sexually curious single people is never good on a society. It's just bad for a society. Period. You're from a society where it's considered normal, but a lot of bad things have become normal. You know, like for example, workaholism and f- absent fathers um, have become normal. <laughs> While they're working, and these days, you know, single parent families all together have become normal. There's all kinds of things that have become normal, and one of those is is um, sexually curious singles that can stay single well into their 30s. And this is a phenomenon that's that's that is not a norm, not in the Jewish world, and not in the secular world, in the Gentile world. It was never ever a thing, and they're actually most more primitive. You know, meaning less Western societies today, they still get married. The girls get married between twelve and fourteen, and the boys get married between fourteen and sixteen. In all societies that aren't Westernized. Another question already? Yeah, that was quick. Uh, uh, would it be possible to change the norm if the majority of people just change their actions or change the consensus? Uh, it's a little late now. There have been some movements, like uh, in, in Yerushalayim, there are. Some parts of Meisharim that are that the girls will get engaged at sixteen, and the boys will get engaged at like seventeen. But it's uh, it's not yet common that kind of practice. It's from very very traditional families that will do something like that. But very traditional. What's that? Yeah. They, well, the thing is, is what's interesting about it is that when you get married. At 14 years old, if you're a boy, you're not exactly expected to, like, you know, go out and, like, become a lawyer at the time. Meaning you're, you're going to be very well cared for by your family. Now, don't forget, historically, every 12-year-old learns a trade and is working by 13. There was no such thing as a yeshiva, never in Jewish history. Yeshivas are only the last 200 years. And they were an answer to the secularization during the Enlightenment movement, when Jews started leaving the fold, leaving Judaism, they created yeshivas to to protect the people. That basically babysits people in yeshiva for a few years until it's time to get married. So the uh, there was never such a thing as a yeshiva. So boys generally worked, they trained at 12, worked by 13, and after bar mitzvah they were already making some money. Also, people lived much simpler than you you had a house with a room and you didn't have indoor plumbing so there was no kitchen you just had a house and it was a room and you lived there with your wife and as you had kids you would expand you know build another room the community gets together you would add add to the size of it it was not they were not dealing with the things we're dealing with today 
And I mean, today, if you marry off a 14 year old, you're going to be basically dealing with a heavy financial liability for years at that, at that point. Uh, let's give someone else a chance. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just going to be your class the whole time. Yeah, go ahead. So, why do people wait so late when most ki- a lot of kids find out out of curiosity and then it goes downhill from there just by. Why, why? You're getting us back to the subject. Thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate that. That was your subject, actually. Thank you. So, anyway, um, so that's why it wasn't really in, in traditional to to teach it in. Uh, that's why it was. It's not a tradition to teach sexuality before marriage, other than right before marriage. And the um, now that the age has gone up quite a bit, so it leaves kids quite curious, you know, at different ages. So those ages have changed over the years. Um, about 10 years ago, that kind of curiosity was hitting, um, was hitting only the smartest kids in the yeshiva who were about 14 or something, 13, 14. They would discover it in the Talmud itself. Why? Because they would notice that the Talmud teacher would skip certain parts of the Talmud. Now, the smarter kids, who also had more ability to learn stuff that was not yet given over, meaning they could really take apart a piece of Gemara, they would, uh, they would take that apart and study, you know, anything the Rebbe skipped was the most exciting stuff to study. And they would study whatever the Rebbe skipped. And the, uh, but also a smart kid learns Rashi. Rashi is very, very liberal when he, when he comments about sexuality. He's very liberal. Even last, last week's Parsha, you know, goes in, Rashi, you know, clearly states that Rivka was not only a virgin from the traditional way, but even from a non-traditional way of, uh, a non-traditional point of entry, as we should say, I suppose. Um, the Rashi's Rashi's not a ninny when it comes to this stuff. Rashi's super liberal about it. And now the kids are learning Chumash with Rashi. Kids are learning that stuff. So a bright kid's just immediately going to be asking his father what that's all about. You know, and, and, the, and, the, uh, and, the, and the secret way that our sages use for the word sexuality is the word Tashmish Hamita, which means... Um, um, <laughs> using the bed or something or it's kind of hard to understand exactly but I, I think every one of my kids have asked me what does it mean tashmish hamita using the bed so if the kid's too young for it you just say just means like you know moving the bed around a bit you know, the kids like, moving the bed around well, that's not going to make a lot of contextual sense but I guess we'll stick with that hold, hold for a few minutes let me try to develop this okay now <laughs> By the way, you should know I love questions because <laughs> I usually come in here having no idea what I'm going to say. Oh, so you. your questions are everything for me. But actually, yeah. today I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> actually, I don't know what I'm going to say as usual. But but here's the thing. Here's the thing. As a parent, your job is preempting your kids knowledge with every subject every subject your job when you're talking to kids is to feel around their knowledge base for anything anything could even be money and finance and stuff like that many kids don't have any idea about that you work to make a living to bring home food to 
You know, that mommy can shop or daddy can shop and bring home something to eat. Kids just don't get that. And why let them know that when they're four? And the answer is you don't let them know that when they're four. Unless you unless it's your, a firstborn son of a capitalist, because every firstborn son, every father thinks he has to tell him absolutely everything that there ever was to know under the sun, I guess in case he dies, or in case he dies, my son shouldn't like, not know everything. And the next son, you're like, well, that was stupid. You know, like, why don't we let this kid actually grow up normal? You know, he doesn't have to know everything. And the third kid, you're like, let him figure it out himself, you know, ultimately. <laughs> But certain things are better to figure out themselves. Certain things are better that you help them figure out. And one of those things is sexuality. You want to you wanna feel out the situation with sexuality with your children to get a sense of what they know. And depending what they know, you let them know. And you also, it's really important that you're super open with your children in such a way that they trust you for all their sexuality information. You are the receptacle, the receptacle, sorry, you are the, the giver of all sexual education because if it's not going to be you, well, it's going to be their friends. And, and so you don't want that going on at all because you have no idea what other parents are telling their children, maybe way beyond what you would have told your children. So as long as you're right above the, right above the curve, right in front of the curve of knowledge, of your children's knowledge of sexuality. As long as you're right in front of that curve, you are the educator, and they're going to trust you, and they're going to love talking about it, too. It's going to be very exciting for them to talk to you about it, and it's really important. You're the... What's the right word I'm looking for? You, I, I'm stuck with the word educator. You're the... Ed, student in you're the educator. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, there is a term for it. Whatever, you're the They're address. Their knowledge. I'm looking for a word. Doesn't matter. You're the address. Now, anyway, but I could give you some very important times. One of those important times is, is around puberty. Then there are discussions with the children. We'll discuss them each individually, boys and girls. Um, when it comes to girls, girls have... A, girls have a, a really deep need for relationship and it's important that they understand going into high school from 14 I think it is when do girls go to high school about 14 I think that, that before they go into high school where they're going to hit the big leagues so it's really important that in, only in these days by the way you didn't have to do this 10 years ago but today any girl going in at 14 years old needs two instructions. Uh, one instruction is about sexuality in general. She also has to protect herself and make sure she's not, she is not falling prey to any predators. And uh, that's one. And the other thing is that she also has to be instructed on relationship. And that is to not, not go too deep into relationships in high school such that it messes up her marriage later. You don't want your child to get that involved in a relationship that her marriage, and boys too, but specifically more girls, is that you don't want their marriages to be messed up by their relationships. I've had to counsel women in their 30s, they've already been married 10 years or plus, who had, who had gone too far with their best friends um, and were 
where their hearts, it, it, women, men and women both want to give all their hearts to somebody. And they want someone to hold their heart forever. And especially in the ages around, around 14 on, there's a tremendous need that someone would hold your heart. And this is why women fall prey so easily, because any man could pretend to hold a girl's heart. And, you know, if she doesn't have really, if she is not seriously um, fortified for, for protecting herself, he's just going to keep playing her until he wins. And when he wins, then he's going to block her number after that. Or he might not block it for a couple of weeks, but uh, he will block it eventually. And so that's why it's really important if a girl ever has someone saying how much she loves, he loves her, that she has a couple moves she makes. One is she asks him and watches his eyes and facial muscles very carefully when she asks this. She asks him, have you ever said this to anyone else before? And he's going to either tell the truth that he's a predator, meaning he's a young, nice neighborhood predator. He's not a rapist. He's a predator. But he, he's a predator of, of women's, uh, women's bodies. And, and the, uh, but the thing is, he likely will lie, but he'll give away the lie with his eyes or his, his facial muscles. And there will be something in his body language that will show you that he's lying. And then you know he's predating on you. He's preying on you. And, uh, and then the other move, which is a very simple move, is are you going to be, are you going to be <laughs> worth more or less after you get thrown out? Or even the next day. Meaning, let's say a girl does acquiesce because he loves her. You know? And then, of course, we find out what he wanted. And then is she worth more now? Or worth less now afterwards. Meaning, meaning, is she, is she been built by this or broken down by this? Has she been made better by this experience, or has she been been made worse in her experience of herself, her life, her overall situation? Which one, better or worse? And the answer is not just a little worse, but if depending how observant the family is, you know, because if this if, if virginity is considered a high goal here. So then a lot worse, meaning she has been taken a step down. She has been dropped an entire category that is a massive category that includes stuff that's read on the ketubah, under the chuppah, that you know should be able to be read but could not be read if she loses her category as a virgin. So now, so what's that step? We're ta- what's that move we're taking? The move we're taking is... is If he loves me, why is he taking me down? Someone who loves me would only take me up. When you love somebody, you build them. No one who truly loves another person would ever break them in any way. No one would make them worth less by having been in a relationship with them. Part of loving somebody is raising them up. You're always raising somebody when you love somebody. And therefore, she's got now she has bug repellent and he's the bug. Because it's clear that what he wants is going to be taking her down. And so all this love he keeps, you know, playing her with is, is actually just predatory skills. And, and she can now catch him red-handed taking her down. Now, how, one second, how can a girl allow such a thing to happen to her? And the answer is, the reason she can allow such a thing to take place 
is because that's how vulnerable these ages are. And this is part of the fallout of having stopped marrying girls off at this age, is that they're, they're in an extremely vulnerable position to allow someone to lie straight to their eyes, like meaning just completely lie and prey on them, and they will fall into that. Not only will they fall in once, they'll fall in multiple times, and sometimes become, it, it becomes like almost a serial acquiescence that she has with, with, uh, with males. And, but, but again, the way this is going to show up in marriage is just going to be really, really rough. Meaning the person who actually puts his ring on her finger for the rest of their lives... Meaning this guy's dedicating his life to her, come rain, sleet, or snow, no matter what goes on, he is absolutely 100 dedicated to this woman's heart and the betterment of her situation. But who he gets is just an absolutely destroyed soul. Someone who's been through the egg slicer, and not just once, but like switched the angle and keeps getting sliced and diced. And... And that's what he gets. Now, he has, you know, unless she tells him, which is going to send him packing, he's going to run for his life. So unless she tells him, when he, which she probably wouldn't and shouldn't, he's, um, it's a really unfair thing to do to a man. And it's also um, unfair to do to oneself, is that you really want to be so pure for your essential soulmate, God-given relationship, like that is not something you take lightly. You are, you are, the relationship you will be having when you get married is a God-given thing. You don't have so many God-given things besides your eyes and your, you know, meaning your five senses, you got your body, you know, like those are God-given things. Everything else is like, you know, maybe it's God-given that these are your parents and these are your siblings, but not a lot goes on in your life that's God-given. It's meeting straight, direct like that. But your soulmate is. Who you'll marry is a God-given reality. And it's the most magical thing of your whole life is that person. And its quality is based on the dedication toward one another. But you got to have something to dedicate. What's that something? Your heart. Your heart's got to be intact. How do you dedicate your heart when your heart's missing half its pieces from stupid relationships that you know were were you know not at all rectified? So when there's nothing left of you, so how is that giving someone your heart when you got nothing left to give? So so that God-given thing is something you want to honor. Now, by the way, I just want to mention that if anyone did blow it, who's watching this video or is in the room and has already given their heart away a couple times, and it's been sliced and diced and all that. So what that means in your marriage will be uh, years of trust, that you'll have to gain a lot of trust, because it's really hard to open your heart when you've been hurt. It's really hard to open your heart. And the funny thing is, is you're wearing a wedding band. Like, it's like, what the mind knows, the heart is slow. You know, what the mind knows, the heart is slow. The mind knows, hey, I'm married. The heart is slow because the heart doesn't trust. It doesn't matter. Even ring, wedding, dancing, everything. But I have, I've, I've spoken to couple after couple. Every couple who has a past before that wedding 
takes years of trust, years of trust to finally open up the heart. And you want to know something? This is not depressing. It's not depressing because it's what God intended for your growth, obviously, now that we're after the fact and now we're married. Our job as people is to be giving trust and giving trust and giving trust and, and giving more heart as we're giving trust and we're giving more heart and more heart. And what happens is as you're, over the years of your marriage, you develop more and more trust for each other and more and more heart gets salvaged that you're able to find parts of your heart that you just thought you'd never be able to GPS. And like here you've GPSed it and you've found it and you've and you're given it. The second you find something, you give. You find that part of your heart, you give that part of your heart. All of this that I just shared is why it's so important to educate your children in relationships before high school. And these days, it's probably even younger. I would imagine 13, 12. It just depends. Your job is to be in such an amazing relationship with your children that they share the periphery of their knowledge. They're sharing the outside edge of their knowledge. Now I know the outside edge. I can now inch them further and lead them with total trust and total, obviously, um, uh, confidentiality of the conversation. It's usually not both parents who have this level of openness and guidance ability. Um, so, but you know, make sure it's you or your spouse. Okay, I see a lot of questions coming up. His was the first. Yeah, well, make sure it's a question I, or, or a comment. Comments. One comment and one question. Yeah, no problem. Comment. Um, the comment I have, well, for me, it does make sense to me to a certain extent in the sense that... I don't know what it is. I spoke about a lot of stuff. I'm going to say what it is right now. It is uh, that... Um, well, realistically speaking, there's more women than there are men in the world. So from the woman's perspective, of course, there's limited options as far as men. On the flip side, though, I refuse, I refuse to believe that there's that uh, that all men are womanizers that will just take advantage. Yeah, I refuse Sorry. to believe that too. Yeah, just, you and I are on the same boat in that question. Uh, I, we agree on that. Yeah. yeah. So you know, when you have maybe some of the kids in the room, and my, my youngest is eighteen, yeah, graduated high school. He's in the room. No, 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 no. I'm referring to some other people probably the same age. Oh, okay. 18-year-olds. Um, right. And how... I'll come back to you for your question. Yeah. We're going to have maybe a more in-depth conversation. Where would you lead that to? In regards to what we're talking about, the topic at hand. For an 18-year-old? Yeah. <laughs> um, who doesn't know about the, these details? What was that? They don't know about this stuff? They do. Oh, meaning they know about the act, but right, they don't. They don't know all the relationship stuff. Well, just, right. The, the the like you talked about. Um, this is where this is down somebody just because you want to feel good. Uh huh. Uh huh. Right. Like an eight-year-old boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is what long walks are for. That's why God created fishing. You know, mm-hmm. like you you go out on the boat and can't really go anywhere unless you're going swimming. And you go way out into the lake and you talk about it. You know, you, you have these conversations. This is, this is where, you know, you got to have quarterly, you got to have some kind of little road trip where, <laughs> you know, it's camping or boating or somewhere captive where you can have it all out. 
Yeah, I suggest those kinds of things. I do that with my my kids. And uh, I realize I only got your comment. What was yeah, the question? My, my question was, so we were in agreement with that. What's your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually happy. Yeah. Uh, anyway, my question is, um, okay, so uh, from a, as far as I was taught um, by another rabbi about this uh, particular um, subject, if I'm not misinformed, uh, I was told that um, a Jewish woman has the well I once has the the amount of love that a Jewish woman has can go around enough for about for twelve children I was told. <laughs> now that being said, does the from community judge the the eighty percent of Jews that are not that are not from for having one or two kids that have that amount of twelve the a love for twelve kids spread out spread out for one or two, three kids I like your I like your question. It's a cute question, and it's not an easy <laughs> one. Um, love, love is not limited to people. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, the The question ultimately wound up being: do, Does do the women who can have enough love for twelve people do they judge the one point the one point two people for only having one point two kids while they can? Even though they have the love for twelve, apparently, if they're women. So, anyway, so the answer is, the answer is that every woman has a capacity to love, not just twelve kids. They have a capacity to love ten thousand kids, because love is not a subject of love is not a subject that relates to the quantity of receivers. However, attention does get spread out and you there's not an infinite amount of attention and uh, one one guttle batera in jerusalem one of the great rabbis of jerusalem used to walk around and say that one should never have been born <laughs> he only said it to himself That's not even he said it to himself because he would see he could sense people so well i guess if you heard who it was you'd be shocked i mean it's one of the Ador. he said that that he really felt that that parents who parents who could not give the attention necessary um, to big families, meaning they could have handled ten but they couldn't handle twelve, or they could have handled seven but they couldn't handle eight. So parents who couldn't handle that amount of children, ha- but had them anyway for whatever cultural reasons that we're not going to go into, and then he would see the result of that in some kid walking around. And would have, it could be he also knew who the kid was. I mean, it could be he knew the family because it was he lived in Jerusalem in a much um, smaller populated time here in Jerusalem. He lived into his hundreds, so he uh, he got to he got to uh, see Jerusalem. I mean, he probably knew who the families were and saw that there was not enough attention to spread. Uh, yeah, so we have endless capacity to love people. But we have a limited capacity of how much attention we can give. Also, for parents who are conscientious, which is obviously the best kind of parents, conscientious parents, they, if you're a conscientious personality, then you're going to really want to give everyone what they need, which means no matter how many kids you need have, you're going to keep spreading yourself thinner and thinner and thinner. Well, that can take its toll in the overall parenting if someone loses, 
if the mother loses her well-being over having been that conscientious about each child, she could actually lose her well-being and then everybody loses. He loses the wife, the parent, the kids lose the parent, and it's a, it's a real nasty situation. So highly conscientious people, any person has to be really careful how many children they have based on them being able to have the wherewithal to give to each one of them for all the 18 to 23 years of their being single. You have to be able to give to them. So now for parents who are, sometimes you have Haredi parents who are afraid to use any child uh, birth, uh, what do you call it? Birth control. Any child birth control, any child birth. It's funny, we call it birth control, we get rid of the word child. And for parents, we don't want to be too explicit. So I'm going to use it, though, this time, just because it came out. Any, any parent, Haredi parents who are afraid to use child birth control, um, because, you know, they just feel it's you know, forbidden, and you should really have as many as you can, and, and that stuff. So my advice to them, because they're never going to be able to live with themselves if they don't, so my advice to them is to f- push themselves to the outer limit of perfect sanity, meaning they're still in perfect sanity with six kids. And then, when they, but they're at the edge, meaning they've hit the edge of being totally sane for all six kids. When they've hit the edge of being perfectly sane for all six kids, have a seventh. Go one step beyond, past the comfort zone. That way they, throughout their lives, will always be able to say to God, we went all the way on this. We went all the way. We went one beyond, one level beyond. Now, obviously, this is only with the help of their rabbi who feels like they're going to be able to deal with this. But anyone who can't deal with it should definitely end at their limit. But there are parents who could handle another. It just would be a little much for them to go that far. So if they're those conscientious Haredi types who are never going to, let, never going to forgive themselves if they don't push... So they should go for that one extra kid. Obviously, speaking to their rabbis first, and go go one step beyond. Yeah, back there. I had a guy who came to me to work in camp. Yeah. Over the summer, he was dating a girl, and mm-hmm. they decided to wait until they were from a very modern background. Yeah. They decided to wait until the relations till after the summer. Okay. So over the course of the summer, he had many conversations with me. Yeah. And he rethought the decision. Yeah, I'm sure, especially after a couple beers. So they were together, they were going to wait till after the marriage, but they, he changed his mind during the summer. Did she change her mind, or he just changed his mind? He changed his mind, he wanted to wait till he gets married, and she didn't want to. She's the one who changed her mind. <laughs> She's the predator. Um, there, there's no, uh, there's... This is not a bad thing. She's committed to this guy. She's not. This is not the case I was discussing before. She's planning on spending the rest of. She's planning on spending the rest of her life with this guy. Our story earlier. He wasn't planning on spending the rest of his life with her. But in eighteen hours. With her. What? She was manipulating him. Isn't that interesting? She needed a cold shower. Yes. Throw in the ri- river for a cold bath. 
That's interesting. I'm not going to comment on that one because I'm lent towards saying it's just the power of feminism, but I don't want to, you know, was her name Lilith by any chance? Okay. Um, let's, let's go back to our, the one who created our subject for the day. Yeah. We only have four more minutes here. Yeah. Um, regarding the, the school's role in teaching kids these things, education. Schools, yeah. <laughs> Did anyone here grow up modern Orthodox in modern Orthodox schools? Yeah. Did they teach this in school? They taught it. Not really in your school? They taught in their school? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what your question is exactly. You're, are you asking? Do they do it? <laughs> no, I'm just asking if your what your question is. What is your question? Do schools do it? Should they do? Because they don't. I'm just curious. Why not? Uh, boy, that would make life easier on the parents, for sure. <laughs> But the, uh, meaning parents who are scared to death of this subject. There are people listening to this right now, who are online right now. They talk to me. They're totally scared to death to deal with the subject. And they even get someone else to do it before the weddings. I mean, they'll have someone else to do this. Yeah. It's not. It's just a topic. Yeah. The whole the whole thing is like. Say the word sex at home. You're like you go to your room for a couple of days. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, what's happened over the last generations is is that it probably was influenced by living amongst the Christian world that that observant Jews have taken a much more of a Christian ethic like. Like the Haredi Jewish community is taking a much more Christian ethic when it comes to sexuality. Um, even though the Haredi world's meant to be protecting from uh, Gentile influence, and they do a good job on some stuff, but some stuff they've kind of done a lousy job. And so, um, like for example, Ashkenazim of all people, the um, the 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 Sephardic Sephardic uh, tradition is. To, it, the Shulchan Aruch includes all the ways, not laws, but ways that someone can be uh, a um, tzaddik in the bedroom. Like, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you, how can you be a, what is the very holiest you could possibly be, gentlemen, what is the very holiest you could possibly be in the bedroom? So the Shulchan Aruch, written by Rav Yosef Karo, who is Sephardi, um, he brought down how you can be the ultimate tzaddik in the bedroom. Now, the Ramah, Rav Moshe Isolis, who, whenever there's a discrepancy amongst Ashkenazim, pipes in at that point. And he quotes the Talmud that says, a man can do whatever he wants with his wife in the bedroom. Meaning, what, they can do whatever they want in the bedroom. And the Rambam goes with that too and even gets quite explicit, which is not going to be on my live feed. Um, but it's... <laughs> You know, the, the, and not only does he get explicit in the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, Rav Moshe Isolis, gets very explicit, and uh, and so it's just right, probably before Jews got like, meaning the Haredi movement got into like a more Christian way of looking at sexuality, 
Um, it's just not Jewish at all the way it's looked at, and the, and it was it really is not, and the and it's it's but it but that's what's been adopted, you know, minhag yisrael kodesh, and that's the way people do it, you know, that's the way it's spoken about today, and you know, if you're more of a Chazal Rishon oriented Jew, um, so then so then you would go with uh, being much more open about it. But in our generation, we don't have a choice because either you're going to be more liberal about sharing with your children about sexuality or you're going to be hurting them ultimately because if you, if you fall behind the curve of their education or you're just one of these people who refuses to discuss it, so then in our generations, wah, you're going to be in big, big trouble. And, and one weird thing is, this is totally weird, but, and I hate to say this, but I'm going to, is that the more observant the children are, meaning the more observant the home they're from, the more sexually active they are in weird ways. Okay? The more observant the home, the more sexually active the children. So anyone watching this who's, who's from one of those homes thinking that maybe because it's just such a taboo subject that maybe you can somehow squeeze under the radar and never have anything like that take place, you should know there's a direct correlation of of sexual acting out, um, the more observant the community. And, uh, and no one's exempt from this, and, and you can almost be sure that if it's not something that's discussed, it will be something that will be acted out on. So therefore, my advice is to let very little information out, by the way. I'm, you may think I'm liberal. I'm not liberal at all. You just, get, you just push them a little beyond the edge of what they know, and you become the source of their education when it comes to it. You become the one they talk to about this stuff right above the edge of what they know. See, and you got to keep your finger on their pulse. What do they know? And always be pushing right in front of that place, right in front of that place, leading them slowly with information. Um, and they should have no clue that you're holding anything back because if they feel you're keeping something back, you're going to lose the trust and then you lost everything. The dynamic I'm sharing is you're always as if you're telling them really everything, but later you can time release a little more detail over the years as they go. Um, I can just tell you on a personal note, my daughters have said that it's been a little lonely to be in high school with me telling them before high school not to go so deep into all the, you know, the dramatic, extremely highly soap opera dramatic relationships that girls get into with each other at these, you know, all-girls schools. And they said it's been a little lonely because all the girls are getting, the parents are saying nothing, so the kids are getting in all these relationships, and it's so dramatic. And they've said it's been a little lonely in high school for them, but it's worth it. That's what they say. My kids say it's worth it. Girlfriends. Best friends. Boys have the same issue. We, we had spoken about, remember I spoke about giving all your heart over to somebody? Oh, I wound up on the predator thing. Sorry, I was talking about best friends. The BFFs, best friends forever in high school, get way deeper and, and sadly physical as well. Um, way deeper in, in communities where boys and girls learn separately. They, get, uh, they, they can get pushed, they can push way too far on that as far as giving their hearts over. Also physically, but giving their hearts over. Yeah, the, that was what I was saying, that that messes up their, their 
that, that's something they have to work through later in marriage. You know, when all that, like, oh, now I'm supposed to give my heart to him. Like, I already gave my heart to her. You know, my best friend. And so, and so that's why things have to be done in a balanced way in your relationships till marriage. Listen, all of this is just band-aids for the last couple hundred years. Not even hundred years, the last hundred years. When people start getting married older. Once people start getting married older, now we have this class. Before people got married older, there was no such thing as such a class. Let's give him a chance. He never yeah, got a class. Hallenberg of the Shire asked, so what do you tell a nine-year-old boy? <laughs> it's the same exact answer. Figure out what he knows. Take him on that long walk. Find out everything he knows. And and keep his trust by letting him know that it's it's not, you know, that it's real. Whatever he knows, like com- uh, validate his knowledge. And then, uh, and then, Take him, take him a little further to get the whole picture because right now it's just one big giant mysterious thing with pointed ears and fangs. So make it friendly and and something that settles his curiosity. Yeah. Just a quick, very quick comment, if I may. Um, so uh, my comment is, um, you know, no, but in all seriousness, it, for me, from the side, it, it kind of seems a little sad in the respect that, um, in the perspective that. Uh, you know, growing up, I've seen uh, from the side, you know, um, uh, families, you know, growing up together and, you know, relating back to what you were saying about certain parents being conscientious and certain not so much, you know, because the majority of families that grow up, they grow up, you know, uh, majority of the time in school, more so they're spending more time with their teacher than they are with their family. And when they're home, they're not having dinner together. They're eating at separate times and not really spending much time together, which I yeah. really find is sad. Yeah. Um, that being said, it kind of it's almost like you know the ones that are uncon not conscientious, like they they just kind of um, ex- expect the responsibility of you know teaching that you know um, um, the uh, sexual stuff. Yeah. Um, to to their teacher versus having a one on one with their um, with their child. Yeah. And I kind of I think it's really sad. Yeah, it's a tradition that was supposed to be from parent to child, yeah. for sure. Um, everybody, uh, I bless you that uh, that everything we spoke about is is for blessing in your lives, and that uh, and that somehow in this wild hemorrhaging young people's generation that. That we all of us can do our best to stave off the uh, the uh, you know this this torrential you know river of of you know basically it's funny it's these are the parshas of Asav you know so this is this is Asav's Asav's ultimate goal and he's doing an amazing job and we are Bnei Israel and we stand for other stuff and please God we're going to be able to live in the balance between physical, and this subject was sexuality, between the physical and the spiritual. May we all live with that balance. Amen. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.